Well, let's go ahead and get started and continue our series on using the law lawfully, looking at the Old Testament law, all 613 of the commandments in the Old Testament law. We're going to see if they apply to us as Gentiles, and if they do, how do they apply to us as Gentile believers. And so we've looked at several of them. We've finished already all of the positive laws, and we're now in the negative laws. <clears throat> and of course, we're not looking at all 613 individually. We're grouping some of them together. And so last week, we had looked at the prohibitions on diversity, about having diversities of plants and animals and fabrics. The Jews were, were not allowed to do that. And we talked about those uh, being symbolic for the uniqueness of the, the Jewish nation and how they are separate from the world. And we can None of that applies to us, but we can still have the same symbolism. There are several others other laws that follow that in the listing of the separate mitzvah that are very similar. They're not talking about diversities, but things like um, not uh, not cutting the corners of their head or shaving the corners of their, their hair, uh, not marring the corners of their beard, and, and laws like that. We're just going to skip over all those because they all fit in that same thing uh, where it was symbolic of the Jews being separate from the nations that were around them. And so they don't really apply to us directly, but that same symbolism still applies to us because as Christians, we're told to be distinct from the people around us. And, you know, the Bible tells us how to do that. And for us, it's not things like keeping our beards uh, full and uh, not marring the corners of our head and all that. That's, that's the way it was for them. For us, it's more uh, our attitude and our outlook on life that we're to have that's different from those around us. So we're going to skip over... Most of those, there's another, I want to say five or six of them that were all in a row there. And we're going to jump to a different commandment. <clears throat> this is the commandment that prohibits certain people from entering the congregation of the Lord. And it's kind of an interesting commandment in that there's really no consensus anywhere about what this one means. But we're going to look at it, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. And jump down to verse 7. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. The children that are begotten of them shall enter into the congregation of the Lord in their third generation. And so here we have a list of four categories of individuals that were forbidden from entering the congregation of the Lord. And so the first one is eunuchs. Yes. Congregation of the Lord. Yes. Temple? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. Right. <laughs> so the, the four categories of people were first eunuchs. That's what it's talking about, the wounded in the stones or the previous members uh, cut off. It's talking about eunuchs. Uh, then you have bastards. Of course, that's illegitimate children. Then the Ammonites and Moabites. And then the Edomites and the Egyptians. Now, the Ammonites and the Moabites... 
for 10 generations, they couldn't enter into the congregation of the Lord. The 11th generation. So if your great, 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 great grandfather way back 11 generations ago was an Ammonite, then you could enter into the kingdom of the Lord if it, or congregation of the Lord if it had been already past 10 generations. Uh, for the Edomites and the Egyptians, it was three generations. So for the first three generations, they couldn't uh, enter into the congregation of the Lord, but after that, they could. So those are the four categories. But of course, the obvious question is, what is meant by the congregation of the Lord? And uh, it's there's not really any agreement anywhere on it. There's three possibilities that are presented. Uh, the first possibility is that it, it could refer to citizenship, because sometimes the phrase congregation of the Lord is used to refer to the entire body of the people of Israel, the, the whole political body uh, of the people of Israel. <clears throat> In fact, that's probably the most common usage of this phrase uh, throughout the Old Testament. It's used to, to just refer to the whole collected body of Israel. If that's the case, then this is saying that eunuchs, bastard, Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, and Egyptians could not be citizens of Israel. Right, and that's one possibility. The second possibility is that it could refer to the assembly in the tabernacle or the temple. And that is also called a congregation. I don't know that it's ever called the congregation of the Lord, but it is referred to as a congregation on several occasions. So that could be what this is referring to also. And so if you read commentators, some of them say that that's what it's referring to. Uh, and then it could also refer to holding political office. And so sometimes it's the word congregation is used to refer to the uh, assembly of the elders and the princes of Israel, which was their elected body uh, of politicians. And they had their, their two houses, the elders and then the house of the princes. And so that assembly was often referred to as the congregation. So it could be referring to that and some commentaries will say that that's what it's referring to. There's no real definitive proof as to which one of those three it was referring to, but it was probably it's probably a reference to one of those three. Um, but we don't know for sure which one, or even for sure if it is limited to just those three. Uh, but I don't think that affects our application uh, for us as Gentiles. Uh, now another interesting thing about this commandment is that it probably only applied to males of the nations that were referred to. Um, obviously, the eunuchs and the bastards, that applies only to males. Those are, are male uh, terms. Uh, but when it talks about the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Edomites, it's probably talking about just the males and not the females of those nations. The reason for that is because David's great-grandmother was a woman from Moab, Ruth. Remember the story? You know, uh, Naomi and her husband left. They went to Moab. Uh, Naomi's sons married Moabite women. One of those Moabite women was Ruth. Women was Ruth. <coughs> and then Ruth, of course, came back with Naomi. Uh, and <coughs> uh, Ruth married Boaz. Their son was Obed. His son was Jesse. And his son was David. And so you're only four generations removed or three generations removed from a Moabitess, a woman from Moab, and David. And David, obviously, was a citizen of Israel. He was allowed in the tabernacle. 
and he held political office, obviously, because he was the king. Uh, so all three of the possible things that the congregation of the Lord could be about, citizenship, being in the tabernacle or the temple, and holding political office, David did all three of those. Uh, and yet he was the great-grandson of a woman from Moab. So this command probably only referred to the males and did not refer to the females uh, from those nations. All right, so that's the Old Testament command. And then now here's the part where it gets really easy. There's no confusion at all. The New Testament application, there's no direct application to Gentile believers. This is just a um, command that was given to Israel for the Israelites just for their particular situation, God wanted them to be distinct from these nations around them, specifically the Ammonites and the Moabites. He didn't want them intermingling with the Jews. Now, why mention those in particular? Why mention the Edomites and the Egyptians in particular? Because they were not forbidden from having uh, relations with these nations. They weren't forbidden from having uh, commerce with the Ammonites and the Moabites. In fact, God specifically prevented them from going to war with the Ammonites and the Moabites from time to time. So uh, the Edomites, the Edomites were their brothers. That's the descendants of Esau were the Edomites. And so God says specifically, you're not to harm the Edomites. You're not to, to go to war to them, against them without cause. Uh, the Egyptians, God has a very special place in his heart for people from Egypt. And there's passages in the Old Testament where it talks about uh, Egypt being God's firstborn. And you know, God God many times uh, praises the nation of Egypt. Now he also condemns the nation of Egypt many times because they often did things that they shouldn't have done. Uh, but he does have a special place in his heart for the Egyptians and had a, a long-standing special relationship uh, with the Egyptians. And there's many times that Egypt benefited Israel and has been blessed because of that. Specifically, by allowing uh, Joseph and his brothers and his father, all of them to come down and live in Egypt. And for a long time, they lived there in peace. It wasn't until there was a pharaoh that uh, did not know Joseph. There was a pharaoh many years later that came along that put them in slavery. But for a long time, they, they dwelled there in peace. They were blessed. The Egyptians were blessed for having them there. And uh, God has a special place in his heart for the Egyptians. So they weren't to hurt the Egyptians, they weren't to harm them, but God still wanted Israel to be distinct from Egypt. In fact, one of the commandments that we're not going to look at uh, in depth is that God commanded the kings of Israel not to take the Israelites back to Egypt. Uh, he didn't command them to destroy the Egyptians, he just said, don't go back. <laughs> you, you came out from them, you're separate now, you're a separate nation, don't go back. Uh, and so the Old Testament command was given so that Israel would be distinct from these nations around them. Uh, we don't have that situation as Gentiles for us to be distinct from the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Egyptians. We could probably still draw uh, spiritual applications from it, uh, but we've already looked at those last week. So that's the command uh, prohibiting certain individuals from entering the congregation of the Lord. We don't know exactly what that's talking about, but we do know it doesn't really apply to us as Gentile believers. Any comments or questions on that one? <clears throat> All right, we'll move on to the next one, which will also be kind of short. This is the prohibition against blasphemy. So let's turn to Leviticus 24. <clears throat> 
Leviticus 24 will be in verse number 11. Let's start in verse 11. We'll read down to 16. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses. And his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debiri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in a ward, or in ward, that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Okay, so blasphemy. All the Jews were forbidden from cursing or belittling God. That's what blasphemy is. It's, it's cursing God or speaking uh, little of God, putting God down uh, so that he's either on our level or below us or something like that. So the punishment for blasphemy we see here was death. So all the Jews were forbidden from cursing or belittling, belittling God. Uh, and if they blasphemed God, the punishment was death. Now we can see a good example of blasphemy and see what is meant by this term in Isaiah chapter 37, uh, verse number 6 to begin with. And we'll back up to the previous chapter. So Isaiah 37 and verse number 6. Isaiah chapter 37, starting verse, or we're just going to read verse 6 here. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Excuse me. All right, and so let's move back up into uh, verse, or chapter 36 in order to see the context here. Uh, what's going on is that Assyria is attacking Israel. Hezekiah is the king. Uh, the Assyrian army has marched to Jerusalem, and they're threatening to destroy Jerusalem if they don't surrender unconditionally. And Hezekiah says, no, our God will save us. And he sends that answer back to the Assyrians. Our God will save us. And so starting in chapter 36, verse number 17, we see the answer from the Assyrians. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, uh, let's see, no, verse 18, sorry, starting verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered, and have they delivered a Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Uh, and then it goes on and continues with that. So here we have, uh, I believe this is Rabshakeh, is the leader of the Assyrian army at this time. Uh, Rabshakeh replying to Hezekiah and to the, the Jews, saying, Your God is nothing. All these other gods, 
these other lands, they said that their God was going to protect them, and he didn't. Your God's just like all these other gods. He's nothing. He doesn't even really exist. He's not going to protect you. Uh, I'm just going to march right over you and destroy you. And God said that that was blasphemy. So belittling God, speaking uh, low of God, uh, not having him in proper reverence, uh, that is what is meant by the term blasphemy. And so the Jews were forbidden from that, and the punishment for that was death. Now there's another illustration of blasphemy in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here we have David, and this is after his sin with Bathsheba, and after uh, the prophet Nathan has come and, and confronted him about it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and verse number 14, we see an interesting statement about blasphemy. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And so David was held accountable not just because of his own blasphemy, which he, he hadn't blasphemed God, but he wasn't punished because of his own blasphemy. He was punished because he had caused others to blaspheme. Uh, and so God held this command in very high regards. He applied it very strictly to the Jews. Not only were they not to blaspheme themselves, but they were not to cause others to blaspheme God either. Now, you'll notice the punishment here was not David's death, but was God took the life of the child. And so the punishment is not a strict uh, punishment that the human authority was to bring. This one was up to God, but it shows how strongly God viewed this sin of blasphemy. Just David causing other people to blaspheme was enough for God to punish David. All right, so that's the Old Testament command against blasphemy. Let's look to the New Testament, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, and verse 31. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So here we see blasphemy is still considered a sin for all men everywhere, even among Gentile believers uh, in these New Testament times. So it's, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. So uh, that's showing blasphemy is still a sin. The fact that it has to be forgiven means it's, this is still a sin, even today. It's still considered a sin. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Uh, by the way, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, the context here shows us uh, what that is. That's uh, Jesus has done a miracle casting out a demon, uh, and the Pharisees came along and said, he did this by the power of Beelzebub, or by the power of Satan. Uh, and Jesus referred to that as blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So taking something that is done by the power of God, so that's the Holy Ghost working, uh, and <clears throat> saying that's actually power of Satan. So you're calling the Holy Ghost uh, Satan, or belittling, or cursing, or blaspheming the Holy Ghost. And he says that is not going to be forgiven. Uh, 
that's all other sins, all blasphemy. In fact, the next verse, whosoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, that's against Christ, uh, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Uh, so blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is taken very seriously, uh, even in New Testament times. And then let's turn to uh, Matthew 15 and verse 19. Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Okay, and so, of course, you know the context. Pharisees are complaining that the disciples ate corn as they were walking through the cornfield. Or the, uh, corn just refers to the, the fruit of the uh, grass plant, so this is probably wheat that they're eating, or uh, maybe oats or something like that. But anyway, they're they're eating uh, some type of grain without washing their hands first, and they said, "Oh, this is terrible! They committed this great sin, eating with unwashed hands." And Jesus says, "Nope. What defiles a man is what comes out of the heart, not what goes in through the mouth." And he listed these things that come out of the heart. One of them is blasphemies, and that is listed as a defilement. Of men. So again, even for us as Gentile New Testament believers, uh, blasphemy is seen as a sin. And then we can see it very clearly stated in Colossians chapter 3. Let's turn to Colossians 3, verse number 8. Colossians 3, verse 8. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Okay, and we can keep reading, but this is a command for Christians to put off all these things, all these wicked, uh, evil things from the flesh. We're to put those away, and we're to turn instead and uh, live righteously. So one of the things we're to put away is blasphemy, which indicates that obviously it's still going to be a sin for us as New Testament believers. Now you could argue that Matthew 12 and Matthew 15 is Jesus still talking to Jews, so you know, that doesn't really apply to Gentile believers, but you can't make that argument about Colossians 3. And uh, Colossians 3 verse 8 very obviously applies to all Christians, and so we are all to abstain from any type of blasphemy. And then now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are also commanded or instructed that our lives should not cause others to blaspheme. Just like God punished David for causing other people to blaspheme, uh, we get a very similar warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So 1 Timothy 6 verse number 1 let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And so we are to uh, treat our employers in such a way that they would not say, I don't, you know, you have this Christian over here that's a lousy worker, 
he must have a terrible God. His God must not be anything worthwhile. It's not anyone I want to uh, have ruling in my life. You know, any type of attitude like that from our employers is something that we are to avoid by working well. And so we're commanded to work well, to have a good testimony in the workplace so that those around us, our co-workers and our employers, will not have occasion to blaspheme God. And then we see in Titus chapter 2, verse number 5, God singles out the women in particular about the sin of blasphemy and causing other people to blaspheme. So this doesn't really apply to us since we're a men's class, but we're going to read it anyway. <laughs> so, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse number 5. Uh, to be discreet, this is the old women or teach the younger women, to be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Okay, so the reason that the uh, younger women are to learn to be discreet and chaste and keepers at home and good and obedient to their husband, the reason they're to do that is because of their testimony among the lost. So that the lost don't see their lives and think their God's nothing special. You know, I don't want anything to do with their God. They've got a terrible home life. Why would I want uh, to emulate that? And so the, the women are cautioned that they're to learn all these things so that God's name is not blasphemed, the word of God is not blasphemed among the lost. Okay, so we see that in the New Testament. This command still applies to everyone. It's a defilement to uh, anyone who engages in it. We're commanded not to, to blaspheme and uh, not to cause others to blaspheme. Now, in the New Testament, there's no statement of a punishment. We've seen, uh, for example, idolatry. You had the death penalty in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God said that the punishment should be excommunication. So they're just kicked out of the church if they engage in idolatry. Uh, and for blasphemy, we had the death penalty in the Old Testament, and there's no explanation about a penalty in the New Testament. Uh, we know it's not the death penalty. Because Paul said of himself that he was a blasphemer, but he found forgiveness. And so you know, he wasn't to, to be put to death now that he has become a Christian. Uh, and so the, the punishment is different now. And we don't really have a punishment given in the New Testament. However, we can look at the Old Testament and see that having a uh, civil punishment for blasphemy is not necessarily an immoral thing. Many people would think, oh, that's a, that's a violation of the freedom of religion and so on and so forth. Not really. Um, you can have a different religious belief and still not blaspheme God. You know, a Muslim, for example, can be in a Christian country and never convert to Christianity, maintain uh, himself as a faithful Muslim, and yet never belittle the God of Christianity. That's, it's possible to do. In fact, it's what was done in our own country at the beginning because for the first maybe 100 years or so, uh, blasphemy was a punishable crime in America. And there were occasionally people who were prosecuted and imprisoned for blasphemy. Uh, and so it's not specifically immoral, uh, it's not ethically wrong to have a civil law against blasphemy, uh, not just that it not just a church law, but also to have a, a civil law for everyone saying that 
you cannot blaspheme God in our society. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not unethical. Uh, if it was unethical, God would not have done it for the nation of Israel. Uh, and then even, even in our own country, we can see examples of that. There were many Muslims who lived in America, many uh, in, the, in the early time period of our nation, many people of all kinds of different religions. There are many atheists uh, in America during uh, the, the founding time period. In fact, uh, one of the main complaints that uh, John Adams had about the generation that he was leaving behind as he was on up in years, one of his main complaints is that they were becoming atheistic. The, the whole generation uh, was just filled with atheism. Uh, and God turned that around, brought a great awakening, brought a big revival to America and turned it back around. But America was very strongly leaning atheistic by the time our founders were starting to die off. Uh, but still, blasphemy was a criminal offense at that time, and it was never considered to be a violation of a First Amendment right uh, for freedom of religion. Right, but anyway, that's the, the Old Testament command for blasphemy. The Jews were for, prohibited, and the penalty was death. And the New Testament were still prohibited, but uh, the penalty for death seems to have been abrogated uh, because we have many examples of blasphemers coming to know Christ, receiving forgiveness, and not having to face the death penalty. Are right, any comments or questions on that one? Quiet group today. All right. Well, that's it for today. We've got about uh, five minutes left. Uh, we'll just get out a little early today. And uh, Jeff, why don't you close us in prayer this morning?